0: In 1519, ten years after Henry VIII became King of England, a small group of Spanish conquistadors led by Hernando Cortes came across a sophisticated civilization more than 5,000 miles away from Europe in what is now Mexico. Within two years, the Aztec Empire had been all but destroyed. But its complex culture still fascinates us today. Their use of ritual sacrifice, their beliefs about the afterlife, and perhaps surprisingly, their advanced attitudes to gender roles, including schooling for both boys and girls. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in this edition of Not Just the Tudors, I'm delving deep into the world of the Aztecs with Dr. Caroline Dodds-Pennock to discover an extraordinary society and its differences and similarities to its European invaders. Caroline and I have long been Twitter buddies, and we've even recently collaborated on a book. But this is the first time we've had an actual, it's not quite in real life, but in real time conversation. And Caroline is senior lecturer in international history at the University of Sheffield. She's the author of Bonds of Blood Gender, Life Cycle, and Sacrifice in Aztec Culture. And if you enjoy our conversation, which I'm sure you will, you must rush out and buy it because. Not only do I think it's brilliant, very well written, really fascinating stuff, but also it won the Royal Historical Society Gladstone Prize. And she's currently writing a book that we're eagerly awaiting, which is on early indigenous travellers to Europe entitled On Savage Shores The American Discovery of Europe. So hopefully we'll talk about that in the future, but it's the Aztecs we're talking about today. So, Caroline, could we start by talking about our nomenclature? Aztecs or Mexico or other words that we use, what's correct? What should we be saying? That's a good place to start. Thank you for the kind introduction. The
1: book is quite old now, but the starting point for the book, so it makes sense for the starting point for the conversation, is what we call these people, because we've come to know them as Aztecs, but that's actually a term which is really invented in the 18th century. It comes from their origins in a place called Aztlán. A guy called Clavijero starts calling them the Aztecs, and it sticks, and that's how they've come down to us. But in reality, they would have called themselves either the Mexica, the people of Mexico, so spelt the same as Mexico but with an A on the end, or Mexica Chichimeca, which sort of evokes their origins as people of Mexico but also people of the Chichimecs who are a warrior, nomadic people, or else they'd have called themselves by the name of their city. So they might well have called themselves the Tenocha, the people of Tenochtitlan, or Tlatelolca if they're from there, and so on. So what should we say today? (laughs) I think we should probably stick with Aztecs simply because that's what people recognise. And the difficulty is that if you talk about things people don't understand, then they tend to switch off, I think. So I'm sure some of my colleagues would disagree with me, but I tend to use Aztecs, but caveat it, you know, and say, but that's probably not what they would have called themselves. The famous Aztec Nahua translator, wonderful scholar Miguel Leon Portilla, he was asked what to call it, and he started calling them the Azteca Mexica. So he sort of stuck both together. But I think we could probably stick with Aztecs and we'll be all right.
0: And we have the same for the Tudors. I mean, they wouldn't have called themselves the Tudors. And we, of course, we all yeah. use that term all the time. It would have been kind of an embarrassment for the Henry Seventh to be referred to as Henry Tudor. And I suppose the other thing to think about is what period we're talking about. We're going to hopefully go on and talk about what we know of Aztec culture, or some of it at least, and... I suppose in some ways what period we're talking about is slightly hazy because of the sort of sources we're using. It's kind of like when we see a star, we're seeing something that was 1500 years ago or whatever, Mm -hmm. however many years in the past. And in some ways, the picture we have of the Aztecs is kind of a glimpse of a collapsing culture. Is that right? I think
1: I would personally be a little bit careful with the word collapsing just because it implies that they're imploding in some ways in their own right or off their own backs, where in fact what happens is that we get a huge Spanish invasion in 1519 and their dominance in Mexico is brought to a rather abrupt end. But millions of their descendants still live in Mexico today. So I'm always a little bit cautious of saying that they were obliterated or collapsed and so on because there's so much that continues. That said, coming back to where you really started, what you want to talk about, which is sources. We do have this incredible difficulty with sources because apart from archaeology and a few pictographic documents, we have absolutely nothing from before the Spanish invasion. The Aztecs are a literate culture They use pictographic texts to record huge amounts of information, religious, administrative, legal records. But then when the Spanish arrive after the conquest, they destroy all the records because they're worried that they might be corrupting, that their religious documents, they don't really understand it. And they then realise they've made a mistake and start asking for some of those documents to be recreated Some of the indigenous people recreate documents or write in their traditional pictographic form after the conquest. But for an awful lot of our information, we're dependent on texts produced by Spaniards or a little bit later Mestizo and Nahua writers looking back at the Aztec empire. So what you have are all these documents that are produced either under the aegis of the Spanish or in collaboration with the Spanish or by Europeans themselves, or by indigenous people who've been influenced by living in the colonial world. So everything that you're using is filtered by this lens of being in the colonial world and working with Spaniards. Nahuatl, the Aztec language, isn't an alphabetic text until after the Spanish arrive. So even things written in Nahuatl, we're reliant in translating them on dictionaries written by Spaniards who didn't know what Nahuatl meant. And so the meanings of the words often slip between our understanding of them and the original. The most famous example is probably the word tlaxoli, which for a long time was translated as the word sin. That's how it appears in the earliest Spanish Nahuatl dictionaries, sin and pecado. But really, it means something like dirt or stuff out of place or filth. And so what you have there is a concept, which is actually something which is necessary, but you can't have too much of in the Aztec worldview. And then when you take it through the Spanish and through the translation, you get the idea of sin and evil, which is not how the Aztecs would have seen it at all. So even the language is really, really complicated. So everything that we have is really speculative because we're always trying to strip away the layers
0: and get back to the way that the Aztecs would have seen things. That's really fascinating, because those two ideas are very, very different, aren't they? And they completely colour. I mean, of course you can see that you've got Spanish clerics or whatever leading the charge with producing these sources. They're going to be looking for sin. But actually this idea of dirt, necessary dirt, is a really profoundly different cultural shift. But trying to discover those things, I can imagine that's a real challenge. And so the sources you're working on, you're working in Spanish and Nahuatl, is that right? Yeah, I work in Spanish
1: and Nahuatl sources and I use pictography and archaeology, though I tend to rely on my expert colleagues' interpretation of those as a starting point. I wouldn't claim to be an art historian or an archaeologist But my starting point was with the alphabetic texts. And when I started doing that, which was actually quite a long time ago, it was actually quite an unfashionable thing to do because people had got the idea, quite rightly, that in many ways these texts reflect the context in which they were produced and their authors more than they do their subjects. So after the flowering of post-colonialism, post-modernism, those sorts of things, people said, we can't possibly use these texts because all we're seeing is Spanish preconceptions. And I started working on them because I was working in Oxford and I didn't know you weren't supposed to because there weren't any Aztecists in Oxford at that time. They were all in America. And if I'd been in America, I would probably be a much better Nahuatlato than I am, much better reader of Nahuatl, but I would almost certainly have been working on the colonial period when we have all these mundane by which I mean everyday texts that are genuinely Nahua views of themselves. Nahua is what we call Aztec people after the conquest when it's all Nahuatl-speaking peoples after the conquest, and they become harder to disentangle, though you do still have groups. So these Nahua texts, sorry, from after the conquest, and they were... At the time I was starting to research, huge as a subject of study by James Lockhart started a whole school called the Lockhart School. And he and his PhD students and his PhD students' students all have done amazing work on these texts. But because I was working in Oxford with an Italianist as a supervisor, as a historian, you go, oh, well, I'll have a look at the text. And it was only later that I realised that what I was doing actually had become a bit unfashionable. I think people are going back to the texts now and certainly using them to supplement other things. But for a long time, they weren't the starting point, understandably. But they are very rich, just really problematic.
0: That's what I wanted to ask you. What is in them, all sources, that we're working with on this period are problematic in different ways, especially when we're trying to get to ordinary people's lives or culture and gender and all these fascinating things. But the sources, judging by your book, do provide huge amounts of information nevertheless. And so how have you managed to get at that, really? How are they structured? What can you find in them? Tell me about the sources.
1: So you have several different kinds of sources. In particular, I would say four sorts of sources you have. Sources that are recorded oral traditions, whether composed before or after the conquest is something a bit hard to tell, but sources that come down from the oral tradition, like the Cantares songs, and also speeches. We have these amazing Juejue speeches or words of the elders, which are given at important moments in Aztec lives. These are rote-learned discourses. So it's incredible to be able to access those moments, even if they're a bit static. You have conquistador sources, who of course are really problematic, but are eyewitnesses to at least what things look like and what's happening at the moment they arrive. You have missionary records, most famously the Florentine Codex by Bernardino de Sahagún, but there are others. And these are men who realise that in order to convert Aztec culture, they're going to need to understand it. So with the aid of indigenous collaborators, they collect huge amounts of information. The Florentine Codex is 12 books, of ethnographic information. Bernardino de Sagun has been called the first anthropologist, but actually now we're starting to know the names of his indigenous collaborators better, things like that. And then finally, towards the end of the 16th century, you have what's called the golden age of Nahuatl, when Nahua and mestizo writers write texts of their own histories and start to record their own histories. You have a few earlier that are anonymous, that are Nahuatl writings. So you have to take all these sources and try and sift them for things that don't look likely to have been imposed by the Spanish. So one of the things that was most compelling for me working on gender was that the picture that came out of the sources about gender as being something quite balanced and complementary isn't something I can imagine the Spanish inventing. It's neither very negative nor very positive. You have to always be really alert for Spanish interventions in terms of the language or the framing or their deliberate interventions. A man called Diego Duran, who was very sympathetic to the Spanish, he was a Dominican friar. He wrote several big histories, and he thought the Aztecs were one of the great civilizations of the world. But in recording their histories, like a big dynastic European history, he created a linear royal history almost, where they would have seen it as a cyclical spiritual history which happened within a religious context and within a cyclical repeating context, he blurs all that out and he's only interested in kings and rulers and wars and those sorts of things. So just because they're serious about their recording and try and do it faithfully, that doesn't always mean they get it right even and you can lose things in it. And so I guess what I just do is to sift really, really carefully and read really closely. I do a lot of close reading, a lot of close analysis When I did the book, one of my editors said, could you articulate your theory more explicitly and play down the sources a little bit? You've got a bit too much in the way of sources. And I remember saying, but my theoretical background is the sources. That's where I start. I don't know where else to start with it. But they are so rich and so fascinating and there's so much there. But it is problematic because, firstly, it's nearly all from men. The informants and the writers are nearly all men. For example, I'm pretty sure the Aztecs would have been obsessed with menstruation because blood is a huge thing in their culture, but we don't know anything about menstruation, nothing at all, because it wouldn't occur to friars to ask, and it wouldn't occur to men who were educated in the noble school to talk about it. So we don't know anything about that. They're nearly all by men, they're nearly all by nobles, and they tend to be idealised. So women do this, men do this, carpenters do that, rather than individual stories.
0: That is interesting about menstruation and it does make a lot of sense because actually, of course, the one thing that most people probably know about Aztecs is there's ritual sacrifice, that there is blood taking, a human sacrifice that happens. And I think it would be really interesting if we could think about the cultural complexities of that and the Aztecs and blood, basically your book, Bonds of Blood. I mean, Mm. let's delve into that. Tell me what it's about, this ritualised violence.
1: Human sacrifice has often been somewhere that people are misled about Aztec culture. So people get this sensationalist image of ultra-violent, ultra-bloodthirsty people. But the reality is that although they do engage in ritual bloodletting, it is for quite specific purposes and it's got absolutely nothing to do with being bloodthirsty it is to do with an agreement with the gods so in all of these mythical histories that we have there are sacrificial stories where the gods let blood from themselves or in some cases rip themselves in pieces or sacrifice their bodies to create the world and to create humans and so the Aztecs believe they have to let blood in order to sustain the world to feed the gods and to keep the sun rising they believe the world will come to an end if they don't do that Unlike some forms of human sacrifice, they don't gain personal advantage through it, except perhaps in as much as a warrior who got lots of captives for sacrifice might gain some status. They don't gain spiritual advantage or any sort of power to the person by committing sacrifice, where some forms of ritualised sacrifice, it's all about you gaining power from the person you're killing. It's not like that. It's about feeding the gods. And they're not really interested in pain either. There are painful rituals but suffering again unlike some forms of sacrifice doesn't play any part it's all about blood and hearts and feeding the gods and it's a really sophisticated society with so many things that we would find familiar and comprehensible and so it can be really problematic that people just only see the sacrifice it's like what's that rule where the longer you're on the internet the more likely it is someone mentions the nazis It's like that with the Aztecs. The longer you talk about them, the more likely it's someone mentioned the Nazis or compare them to the Nazis. And it is a difficult worldview to imagine yourself into in some ways. What I find most interesting is that they are a society where they go to considerable lengths to make sure people understand why they're doing what they're doing. This is a culture, the only one I know of before the modern world, though maybe you know of another one, where they have universal education for boys and girls. And The reason for doing that, I think, is to ensure that everyone understands what sacrifice is for. They don't think this is an easy thing to do. So they learn rhetoric and philosophy and religion and logic, all sorts of stuff, in the evenings when they're teenagers. There's other education as well, but everyone does that. And... They don't find this easy. It's not a straightforward thing. There's no sense that you just kill people and it's meaningless. Mourning is a huge thing in Aztec culture. They believe that you go to a privileged afterlife if you die in sacrifice. It's idealised as the best kind of death. And actually, and as far as I know, I'm the only person who's looked at this. There are these speeches given to young men when they go off to train as priests, and it's all about isolating yourself from your home. So they're very family-orientated, the Aztecs. And this is all, the family is no longer for you. You must not look back to your home. You are a priest now. Do not think of us And the training is very like military training almost. We have to do lots of rituals very correctly with no sleep and under difficult circumstances. And it is quite clearly about training people to do difficult things, to perform an act that would feel alien to most humans, to just sort of rip people's heart out. There's no sense that an everyday person could
0: go and do that. It's a special role and you're trained specially for it. So from what you're saying is there's no pleasure taken in doing this. It is a sacrifice. Obviously, it's a great sacrifice on the part of the victim, but it's a sacrifice also on the part of the priest who's having to perform this difficult task, which is necessary for the continuation of life.
1: I think so. I certainly think that the training of the priests implies that it is seen as being a difficult job that it's seen as something you need special training to be capable of committing. That said, I think by the time you are an experienced priest, it probably does become a ritual act, something you just do regularly. I'm not saying Aztec priests agonise over the fate of their victims because they believe those people were going to a privileged afterlife. The closest parallel, I think, is to martyrdom. They believe you die for the gods and you gain a privileged afterlife as a result. The Aztecs don't think what you do in life affects your afterlife. It's only how you die that affects your afterlife. So there are only a few ways to avoid going to Mictlan, which is the land of the dead, which is a kind of dark, low-grade suffering. Not hell, but not very nice. And only a few ways to avoid that, one of which is dying in battle or dying as a sacrifice. So Aztec warriors are supposed to idealise going and being sacrificed in other cities, just as they're sacrificing people here. That said, I think people probably do celebrate the sacrifices. It would be wrong to say that these aren't big festivals and festivities with drunkenness and dancing, shouting. They spread blood through the city and a kind of spreading of the charisma and a bringing of the battlefield into the city. And people are carried away by all the energy and the emotion. These are great events. It's not happening in an atmosphere of mourning. But it's about praising the sun, praising the gods, bringing glory to the city as well. So the more sacrifices there are, the more powerful it means your gods are, the more powerful your city is. But it isn't as straightforward as these people are violent because there's very little interpersonal violence so far as we can see in the city. You can't beat your wife. You can't just go around stabbing people in the streets. wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit.
0: So we've got a warrior culture and that violence is, from what you're saying, very much ploughed into the doing of war and sacrificing as opposed to being a violent culture per se. I suppose what might be helpful is to get a sense of what happens at a sacrifice. We're talking about it broadly, but there are different ways of sort of normal, typical ritual of sacrifice Mm -hmm. and then maybe think about festivals as well so that we have a real sense of that before going into a bit more about what that means in terms of their culture. Yes, there are a lot of different kinds of
1: sacrifice. I suppose two main types of victims, people who are sacrificed as what are called a shiptla, like impersonators of the gods... People who dress as the god that a ceremony is intended to honour and are then sacrificed. And then sacrifices of people who are either described as men, women, children or just victims. And you have the annual round of sacrifices at which there are a shiplet impersonators each month or we call them months, but they're actually 20 days. Each 20-day maintain a month has specific rituals designed for that time of the year. So you have harvest festivals, you have festivals that relate to the warfare season and so on and so forth. And then in amongst that, you have sacrifices that are of large numbers of people, say, to dedicate a temple or whatever it is. Now, an average sacrifice would involve a... Captive being taken to the top of the temple, being stretched backwards over an altar. When you think of an altar, you think of a big kind of table. This is actually more like a pointy plinth. So it sticks into your back so you can be bent backwards over it. And a priest holds each arm and leg. So four priests holding the arms and legs. And another person takes the heart out through the chest. Most of those sacrifices take place on the Templo Mayor, the great temple at the heart of Tenochtitlan. And after the sacrifice, the body is thrown down the steps. And the fascinating thing about this is that this mirrors a story in Aztec mythology where Huitzilopochtli, the tribal god of the Aztecs, their patron god, god of the sun, he defeats his sister, Jauki, who is challenging his authority. And then he throws her down the mountain and she falls breaking in pieces. And at the bottom of the Temple of Maior, you have a big relief, a big sculpture of Koil of the sister. And the bodies are literally being thrown from the temple, which symbolises the mountain and falling next to the sculpture of Koil as her. And then they decapitate them, put the heads on a skull rack, just like she was dismembered. So you have this replaying of mythology all the time happening in the centre of the city. And they would have been very aware of that, that this is a rewriting of the past that's going on over and over. So that's a kind of average sacrifice. You have gladiatorial sacrifices, warrior ones, where they try and cut them until they fall and then they drag them off to take the heart out. And those are an opportunity actually for warriors from other cities to demonstrate their bravery before they die. It's a gladiatorial, uh, about masculinity and warrior prowess. And then you have sacrifices which take place in other places which are again part of mythical stories and one particularly interesting one is that there are only women who are sacrificed by decapitation so where decapitation is the cause of death and that relates to their position as impersonators of the nature god and being particularly powerful it's a whole fascinating history where you have women playing a particular role in the mythology and so they get sacrificed in a special way There's a real intimacy to some of these sacrifices. One in particular, you hear an account of a kind of average sacrifice. And what happens is that the warrior, after you capture or captive, he lives in your district and you care for him until the time of his sacrifice. The warrior then takes him to the temple himself, watches the sacrifice. And then after he's thrown down the steps... He takes the body home, less the best piece, which goes to the emperor, usually the thigh, apparently that's the tastiest bit. And that body of the captive is then consumed in ceremonial cannibalism by the warrior's family and friends. But he doesn't join in. He stands apart and he wears white and is painted in white. And it's a reminder of two things. One, that this is also supposed to be his fate. He could die as a captive. And it's also a mark of honour to the captive who's died. Because before he goes to the temple, they have this little ceremony where the captive says, you are as my beloved father. And the warrior says, you are my beloved son. And they become entangled, their honor and their privilege and their lives are entangled from that point ritually. And so a captive going to a good death, that reflects on the warrior himself. There's so much in there about honor and about warrior masculinity and the way that they are supposed to idealise this as a death for themselves.
0: Yes, it does give a very different perspective on it, doesn't it, when you think about the fact that they're watching this, possibly repeatedly if they have many captives, and knowing that this is how they themselves should hope to die. Because although we don't have, by definition, the perspective of those who die in this way, about what they feel about their death, it does at least give you some sense of how they should have thought about their death, according to Aztec culture, I suppose.
1: Absolutely. And we can be certain that some people did think about it in this way and other people did not think about it in this way. The evidence we have suggests that some people did go to a good death, exalting their city with their heads held high, and other people were dragged kicking and screaming. It's one thing to idealise dying a particular way and another thing to actually go through with it. And that's certainly what I'm sure would have happened
0: in Aztec culture just as anywhere else. Let's think a little bit more about women. So you said that it's only women who are decapitated, but also the fascinating idea I had never come across before I read it in your book is about how women in childbirth are kind of aping warriors. Could you talk to us about that?
1: Yeah, it is really, really fascinating. It's so much the case that mothers are paralleled with warriors in Aztec culture. And part of this is about creating a warrior society where everyone sees themselves as a warrior. So you are part of the warrior effort, whether you go to the battlefield or not. And women are regarded in childbirth as parallel to warriors, both in the action of it. So they talk about them capturing a baby and bearing the small shield into childbirth and all of this sort of thing and in what happens afterwards if you die in childbirth. So women who die in childbirth are paralleled with men who die in battle. What happens is that you have four years accompanying the sun, your spirit. So men's spirits carry the sun from its rising to its zenith, the highest point, leading, heralding this great god to its peak, and the women carry it from the peak to the setting which seems pretty straightforwardly parallel, right? But there's slight difference already appearing in their roles because men get the glorious rejoicing and women get this awful responsibility because they have to hand the sun into the hands of the land of the dead, which is underneath the earth. And they believe that the sun has to fight through the Meklan, the land of the dead, to rise again in the morning. But it is very clearly a parallel. And then Four years after that, it's like a promotion plan. Men go off to become hummingbirds and butterflies that dance in the sun and sip the nectar and live drunk is how they talk about it. Something which Inca clanded in and said she never understood how these great warriors could have been seen as butterflies until she went to Mexico and she saw the big clouds of butterflies. And it was just like people were whirling and dancing with the feathers and so on. Now, women get a rather different afterlife the spirits of women who die in childbirth go off to become the siwatete, or women gods, who live at the crossroads and vest ill will on people on days of ceremonial ill fortune. And it's believed that at the end of time... From these women will arise the titsimime, a word usually translated as devil women, who will devour humanity. Now, this isn't a very pleasant afterlife, (laughs) uh, but it is a lot more important. Not quite like being a hummingbird. It's not, is it? You don't get the perpetual drunkenness and oblivion, and all this stuff, but it's really important. These women are being given far more power than the men. And this is to do with women's connection to the earth through childbirth. They're believed that while they're giving birth, Siwakoatl, one of the aspects of the Earth Goddess, literally embodies them. She comes into their body. So if they die during childbirth, she doesn't leave their body. Her power stays in them. And it's believed to be physical to the extent they have to guard her body really carefully because young warriors will try and steal bits of it to carry as talismans into battle, things like that. There's a really moving account, actually, of the husband sitting over the wife's body, protecting it for four days until she's able to be buried. And so it's very much a parallel, but then the implications are rather different. And it's from this that we get ideas about gender relationships in Aztec culture. Women are really important, but it doesn't always make for kind of pleasant reading. Mm.
0: And is this gendered aspect present For a baby from the moment of their birth, you said that both boys and girls are educated. So that is, as you say, highly unusual for this period of time. But do we see in other ways that boys and girls are treated differently?
1: Absolutely. So gender is embedded in Aztec culture from the moment of birth. So they have a ceremony for all babies a few days after they're born. And the little girl is given weaving battens and a broom, markers of her gender, and her umbilical cord is buried at the hearth in the home and the boy is given little weapons and sometimes craft implements and his umbilical cord is buried on a battlefield by the warriors so already when you're a baby this is kind of marked out now the fascinating thing is from my point of view as a gender historian that from the time you're weaned as a baby the parent of your respective gender looks after you. So boys are looked after by their fathers and girls are looked after by their mothers. So you don't have women with this single burden of childcare, which often shapes their fortune in other cultures. And this gendered childcare is to the extent that if you get divorced, and divorce is allowed in Aztec culture, it's not encouraged, but it is allowed. If you get divorced, the man takes the male children and the woman takes the female children. Now, I would argue that that's because gender in Aztec culture is so... Paralleled, it's these separate spheres almost, this binary organization that they believe you have to have the young boys learning their role from the father and the girls learning the role from the mother. There have been some people who've argued that it's because gender is a fluid thing in Aztec society and so it needs fixing down through gendered upbringing. That's what some people have argued. You can argue either way the outcome is the same which is that you have this heavily gendered upbringing with men taking one path and women taking another there are areas where they cooperate and collaborate so if we talk about in adulthood both men and women can be doctors they can be marketplace overseers which is very important because it provisions the army amongst other things that you have priests and priestesses though the role of the priestess tends to be domestic And in the temple, rather, you don't have sacrificial precesses, for example. So there are a lot of later parallels, all the way up to the ruler. So the Tlatoani is a man. He is the head of the political affairs. And then you have the Siwakoatl, who is often forgotten about, who is also a man. But Siwakoatl means woman snake. He personifies the goddess. And he dresses as the goddess on ceremonial occasions. And I would argue that that's because He takes on the domestic, the internal affairs of the city role and the Tlatelwani, the foreign public space, and that you have to have a female influence even if a woman can't play that role at the highest level. Some people, of course, would say this is just patriarchy, it's men being in charge just like always. But there do seem to be distinctive differences in that women, for example, can inherit equally with men, they do inherit equally with men, You don't have primogenita here, so there's not all the fuss about the eldest son. Power passes through male and female lines equally. Women hold jobs. When we talk about the domestic sphere being the woman's sphere, we mean literally she's in charge there. She provisions the household, she controls the money and everything, or the goods, because, of course, it's not a cash economy. It's not that the man is in charge of it and he kind of comes in and orders her around. It's a very different structure. That doesn't mean that women aren't often excluded from traditional sources of power, but it is a very different world and a very different experience for women than in somewhere like Europe at that time where you're pretty much oppressed by every power structure once you get married.
0: Yes, so let's have a think a bit more about married life. What do we know of Aztec married life apart from the raising of the children by someone of the same assigned gender as them?
1: So when you get married... It seems to be arranged by the families, but there seems to be a fair bit of consent involved in the decision. Probably not at the very highest levels, but ordinary people, you're not being forced into marriage. And they have an incredible symbolic marriage in which they literally tie the knot. They tie their cloaks together. And the mother-in-law of the man feeds him and the woman's mother-in-law feeds her. It's all a very parallel balance ceremony. And then you spend four days closeted together And my reading of this is that it's time to get to know each other, actually. There isn't the forcing of the man on the woman on the wedding night. It is time for young people to be alone getting to know each other before they become full citizens. Because when you get married is the moment you're entered in the register of married men. You become eligible for tribute, for military service, things like that. And if you're rich, you give some money to your community at the time you get married. And if you're poor, they give you resources to set up your household. So it's quite a communalistic society. In terms of married life, the woman would have spent a lot of her time grinding corn, maize, what we think of as sweet corn, but maize, to make tortillas. The household tend to be extended family households around courtyards, things like that. It depends on social status, of course, but the interesting thing is that the roles are quite similar, regardless of social status. You might have better food and nicer clothes, if you're more important. But fundamentally, men go to war, and they tend to do a fair bit of farming. But then if you think about crafts, both men and women do craft work in those districts. They are feather workers and jewel workers and jade workers, mosaic artists. They weave. Women are incredibly important in the economy because they're responsible both for the production of the staple food source, because to grind enough corn to feed a family takes ages. They must have had very burly forearms, these women, all this grinding on the grinding stone. And weaving, which is also quite hard work for your arms. They must have very strong arms. And weaving is vital because one of the staple commodities of exchange is cotton and other forms of fabric. And so fundamentally, the more you can weave, the richer your household is. So women are really important in basic production. And then they might also have had jobs, like being doctors or midwives. But it seems to be that the woman principally takes on responsibility for the domestic roles, where the man principally does things that are outside of the home. So probably women are more involved in childcare in reality to some extent. But we see pictures of four or five-year-old boys going fishing with their fathers, going and learning how to hunt, for example. Because remember when I mentioned fishing, this is a waterborne culture. This is like... American Venice, really, what we have are canals beside many of the streets, people farming these amazing chinampas, often called floating gardens, but are actually anchored to the base of the lake through trees and incredibly fertile. But by the end, Tenochtitlan has become a, what they call a parasitic city. It can't support itself. It's so big that there's also a lot of imports of tribute and so on. But you do all the same things that other people do. You raise your children, you farm. You probably would enjoy gambling, maybe watching the ball game. Poetry and music and singing at every level is really well thought of. Anybody can be a composer, male and female. If you're good at it, it's something where you would be really respected. You can make a lot
0: of money. That's a really fascinating overview of Aztec life. And I'm really struck by that parasitic. I mean, that would be the definition of most economies in the world today, wouldn't it? Therefore, Mm. interesting how these terms get used, like my accidental use of collapsing, you know, in some ways they're kind of judgments yeah. on the society, which actually is, as you're describing it, very sophisticated.
1: It is, I think that's why we have to be so careful. It's not that I'm saying the Aztecs didn't commit human sacrifice. Whenever I mention the Aztecs on Twitter, some person will pop up and shout at me about how they sacrificed people and how therefore it was a good idea they were conquered. But in this period in Spain, people were being burnt at the stake. They were being executed for all kinds of religious crimes. The autos de fe are pretty horrifying. You know, these are not ideal civilizations in any way. It's simply different, isn't it? And it's a different kind of belief. And so... I think it's really important that we can think ourselves inside of other people's ways of doing things. And we do use these words without thinking. Now, I've become much more aware of this in recent years, I would tend now to talk about the Spanish invasion rather than the Spanish conquest, just because it changes the tone, doesn't it? You go from recognising that this is sort of an illegitimate incursion, rather than saying, oh, the conquest, which sounds sort of exciting and dramatic and positive, And it's not that we shouldn't use other kinds of words. It's simply a sensitivity to the perspective you might be creating. So the new book, the reason it's called On Savage Shores, is an inversion. It's a deliberate recognition that the Aztecs... And other indigenous Americans who travelled to Europe saw Europe as savage in many ways. They, in particular, were horrified by the inequities they saw in European culture. They couldn't understand why there were people with huge amounts of money and outside of their gates people were begging for food. They just didn't understand it at all.
0: One thing I'd like to ask you about in terms of the sort of things that I've worked on for France is about the treatment of sexual, in France it's only known as sin. What are the sexual norms? How are people supposed to behave in this society? And is it important in Aztec society how you behave sexually?
1: It is important, but in a very different way to Europe, as you might expect. It is somewhere where it's very difficult because of the Spanish layering on the sources to get at the indigenous perspective on what was going on. But as far as we can tell, the Aztecs are quite sex positive. (laughs) So both men and women are expected to enjoy sex for the sake of it. The trouble is there are some sources that say sex before marriage is punished seriously and then there are others that say unless you were quite successful and the men were there with their concubines and all this sort of thing. There are several sources that suggest that you could be having sex with someone and then when the first child is born you have to decide whether you want to marry them or not which seems very possible, but we can't be certain. What we do know is that within marriage, you're supposed to enjoy sex, any kind of sex. They believe that when the baby is formed, when you get pregnant, you have to keep having sex to grow the baby. But if you have too much sex beyond a certain point, the baby will come out all sticky and be too big. So (laughs) given how sticky babies are, they must have thought everybody was having it away constantly. But it's important that both male and female contributions are considered significant for birth. And it's almost impossible to access same-sex sexual activity. It seems that it was punishable by death. Other people have argued that this is a Spanish imposition, but I haven't, for Tenochtitlan, for the Aztec capital, I've never seen any evidence that it was not a crime. But other parts of Mesoamerica there certainly were, at the very least, ritual transvestism and same-sex sexual activity. But For Tenochtitlan, for the Aztecs, it's hard to evidence, except you get these little snippets. They talk, for example, about how effeminate men chew chicle, which is a bit like chewing gum. And how they make that snap in the marketplace the sound of it and if they weren't there then why would you get that mentioned so we did get these tiny windows that suggest there was activity going on outside of what was acceptable it's men in fact they're worried about having too much sex because they think they might exhaust their that stuff that is needed for procreation you need some of it for procreation so there's an amazing story about how this man has too much sex with these old women and they drain all the life out of him, basically. So if you have too much sex, your life force will be dragged away from you. Adultery is illegal and is punishable by death in every case, it seems. So there are accounts of rulers having to execute their sons for adultery. So it does seem that it's followed through. And for me, I think that's to do with the fact that in Aztec society, they're very concerned to ensure social harmony. People have to be able to cooperate, to go to war. It's quite a collaborative civilization, where there's a lot of effort given to reducing overt markers of hierarchy, even if they're there in some ways. So there's a lot of emphasis put on the performance of egalitarianism, even if some of it's not there, and also social cooperation and organisation. And if you go around having sex with your neighbour's wife, then that probably doesn't do much for social harmony. So sex with other people's wives is prohibited. Polygamy is permitted amongst the high elite. It's hard to tell how widespread that was outside of the very highest nobles, but we know that polygamy is one of the things the Spanish struggled to eradicate after the conquest. There's been some analysis arguing that the polygamy was actually quite good for the women in some ways because it meant they lived in these collaborative households. But I'm not sure about that. Of course, if you're expected to produce cotton then the more women you have producing, the more profitable your household. If you're expected to serve the sexual demands of a ruler, for example, then if you are not a consenting person in that marriage, then it might not be bad if you aren't the only person involved. You know, if the household is a female space, then having a lot of women in it isn't necessarily a bad thing. But that's the kind of extreme end of that more rational analysis. For me, I think asset culture is mostly about partnerships Even in the polygamous relationships, they make a big deal about having
0: one legitimate wife. In thinking about these things, although they're very alien to us in many ways, and of course there would have been great differences between them and European culture at the time, I do see some parallels. I mean, thinking about... The dangers of too much sex is something that they're very worried about for young people particularly. Prince Arthur marrying Catherine of Aragon, the one thing they're concerned about. You can get married but you can't cohabit before a certain point because of the dangers of too much sex or in some of these ways of thinking about adultery. Adultery can be punished severely in 16th century Europe as well. So actually there are some parallels but I'd like to ask you before we finish about two more things both of which are probably quite big subjects but One is about drunkenness and how that has a kind of sacral quality and also about divination and and the role of that in an Aztec society. Just one thing I would say about the parallels, because you're right, there absolutely are parallels. The
1: one big thing for me that is different is that you don't have the sexual double standard. Women are not held to a higher standard than men. And if anything, it's men who are being told to avoid sex more than women. So that for me is the big difference. I find it hard to imagine the Spanish imposing an idea where women aren't held to the higher standard, which is why I think it probably is true. Drunkenness is another area where theoretically it's the same for everyone in that you're not supposed to get drunk. Nobody is supposed to get drunk at all. Drunkenness is theoretically punishable by death, although I say theoretically because that's one where it's not so clear. They do in fact follow through in every case. There are ritual occasions where you get drunk. There's one ceremony where there's one barrel of pulque and loads of straws and all the young men run and they grab a straw and if you get the straw that's been pierced all the way through, you not only get to drink the whole barrel, but you have to drink the whole barrel. (laughs) Okay. But most interestingly, being drunk is something you're allowed to do when you get old. If you have grandchildren, you can go around getting drunk and that's totally fine. Some people say this is honouring these people and it kind of is... But I would say that they've passed the point of usefulness for this culture, actually. Once you get old, you're no longer virile enough to be a mother or father of children. You're no longer strong enough to be a warrior. Although they do look to the elderly as sources of wisdom, this is very much a culture of youth and energy and effectiveness.
0: But being able to get drunk is some compensation for having passed beyond usefulness, I suppose.
1: So it would say, Because drunkenness isn't seen as something that you wouldn't enjoy. It's definitely seen as something you'd enjoy, drinking pulque, which is very bitter, in fact, a kind of cactus wine. There are some ceremonies where it's connected to being close to the gods, so you get really drunk to be close to the gods. But basically it's something old people do. Divination. Anything in particular about divination? That's kind of a big question.
0: It is a big question. I'm just fascinated by the use of soothsayers generally. So just any tidbits you could tell us about how the Aztecs turned to try and divine the future?
1: The Aztecs believed they lived in a cyclical world, as I've said, where history repeats itself and where you can therefore predict the future based on the year and on the date. So they had an incredibly complicated system of what well, we call it soothsaying. They would have called it something closer to readers of days. And you have these very complicated specialist manuals in which you have to calculate not just which point you are in the day count, but also where you are in the year count, where you are in the month count. And so they all intersect. It's a little bit like astrology, where you have all of these different moon rising and Venus kind of stuff, where you have lots of things all come together. And so you predict at a particular moment. If you had a baby, you would be expected to consult the reader of days to find out a good day to give their naming ceremonies. If you're born on a bad day, you might try and compensate by naming them on a good day, this sort of thing. And they believe that the day you're born affects your fate. So they do very much live within a culture where religious belief is part of their everyday life where the supernatural influences how they behave and think and you often see people try and think about religion as something opposite to logic or to practicalities but I would see the two as very much entwined. I think it's the same in Europe at the time you know people are operating within a religious worldview it makes perfect sense to do things according to religious motives. This is why I'm being really careful not to use words like superstition, because it takes this stuff, and we were talking about language earlier, it relegates it to the realm of things that are silly to believe in, as opposed to simply seeing it as a different structure of belief. You can go online, by the way, and look up your Aztec day name. If you Google Aztec calendar... The first one that will pop up is a site where you can put in your date of birth and it will tell you what your fate would have been based on your day and what your day name would have been. It's kind of cool. So if people want to do
0: that, it's quite fun. Well, I will certainly be doing that after this. Thank you so much. I feel like we've only scratched the surface, but what it has revealed is quite how complex and fascinating Aztec culture was and these multiple layers of meaning and of significance in everything, in, even in chewing gum. Mm. So, <laughs> thank you so much for taking us through that and really humanizing a people that I think so often, as you have said, are just characterised in terms of sacrifice. Now we have a little bit more of a sense of who they were as a people. Thank you for letting
1: me talk about it. It's nice to be able to talk about it in an extended way. It's probably waded me into more trouble than I had intended in opening up so many questions. When you talk about it only briefly, you don't have time to even open the questions. So I fear we've asked more questions than we've answered, but it was really nice. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you to Dr Caroline Dodds-Pennock whose book, Bonds of Blood, if you want some more answers to those questions that we've raised, is highly recommended to you. And if you've enjoyed this, please do subscribe. It matters a lot. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built – A house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age. A house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.